Well, take that Bible this morning. I'd like to read the scripture and then I would pray. But I'd like to read from the book of Ephesians. We're going to finish chapter 2 this morning and I believe go right into chapter 3 next week. But we just come to that last section. It's a marvelous section in James, excuse me, in Ephesians chapter 2. And we're in Ephesians 2, 19 down through 22. And what a privilege it is to open this sacred book each Lord's Day. And then we'll read and ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher. Ephesians 2, 19, follow along. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built, excuse me, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray and ask Him to illuminate our minds. Father, thank You for the revealed Word. In fact, we're even here as part of our worship built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the doctrine they laid down. And of course, here because of the cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, would you open our minds, illuminate our hearts to see the word of God, to see the church of Jesus Christ that the Lord formed and framed upon his death and resurrection by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. So God, guide us as we go forward, and we would just pray that you would be pleased in every way with our worship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, all the way, really, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul has been really moving forward in his love for the local church. It is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. It's actually up until this point only used one time, look back in chapter 1 and verse 22, when it says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him, speaking of Christ, as head over all things to the church. It's just been used at that point, but he is really just moving his writing of this book to that place. He is furthering the development of that because Paul loves the local church and I would say in my own heart, I love the local church. I would say to you that I love this church. I love the saints who have been gathered here, but even more than that, Christ Jesus loves the church that he shed his own blood for it. So as we come to chapter 2 at the end, he's really bringing out his final point of the reconciliation in chapter 2 that has taken place. Not only does God make us alive, but in coming to Christ, we are now placed somewhere. You don't just come in a vacuum. You get redeemed, you get saved, and then he places you somewhere, and he places you into the glorious church of Jesus Christ. Now, as we follow this outline from chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, three descriptions of this reconciliation and what God has done are brought into focus in this passage. And we've already seen the first two. There was in 2.11 and 12 an alienation 
both physically by not being circumcised and part of God's plan in the Old Testament, but even more, there was an alienation spiritually where it says there in verse 12 that we were Christless, that we were hopeless, that we were homeless, that we were godless, and we went through that alienation. But then we got to that second key word, our reconciliation. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he begins to explain the work of Christ in reconciling us. So we were under alienation. Then we experienced Uh, reconciliation, look at verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And this leads thirdly to the third word, I'm just going to call it creation. Creation, if you want to understand how to follow the flow, just put it in an arc. Alienation, reconciliation, creation. And the creation, the new creation, is the body of Christ. It's the church. In fact, look at verse 15. There it says that in Christ's death, he abolished the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might, and there's a wonderful word, verse 15, create in himself one new man in the place of two. So he doesn't just incorporate the Gentiles into the Jewish faith. He makes something. When God said, let there be light, There was light and he made something. And here he's creating again is Christ in his death that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. In the place of the Jewish people and the Gentile people that in Christ the two have become one new man. Utterly unique. And so he doesn't just bring a conglomeration of Jew and Gentile together but he makes a new man and That is a description of the church. In fact, look again at verse 14. Let me just touch on this. He made us, verse 14, who has made us both into one or both one. That's what we are. He's driving here after the unity of what the cross accomplished and the peace that it brought. Look at verse 15. We actually just read that. that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. They were hostile to each other. We talked about that in that alienation. In fact, look at verse 16, that he might reconcile us both, obviously, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so this is what God has done. And I think Casey read from that. There's a song, come and see what God has done. This is what he has done. So let me say to you very specifically, okay? He not only died on the cross for your sins, but in doing such, he created the church and a new community that you ought to belong in. This is the testimony of Scripture, He not only redeems you and saves you, and in chapter 2, verse 5, makes you alive, but he puts you somewhere. He puts you in the church. Now, to understand this creation, I'll call it this new creation, 
he provides three biblical truths of who the church is and how the church operates. We're going to look here that you have been made holy. And if you're wondering, I'm picking that off, the word in 2.19, where it says you are fellow citizens with the saints. The word saints is hagios in the Greek. It's just simply our English word for holy. So he made you holy. But not only did he do that, you are God's household, verse 19b, and then we'll spend the brunt of our time on verse 3, that you are God's holy temple. He uses that word in 21 at the end. He grows you into a holy temple. For the household of God, we are members at the end of verse 19 of the household of God. And for holy, we are his saints. So let's dive in and look at this first truth, okay, that we are made holy. Look at verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, Now, I think obviously when he gets to verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Again, that you most likely is to the Gentiles. You who were Christless, you who were on the blacklist, you who were homeless, you who were hopeless, you who were godless. He now says, because of the reconciliation, that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. You have been made holy. Now, when he begins there in verse 19, he said, so then, and it's just really the result. The result of our oneness or the consequence of our oneness. The consequence of what Christ has done is you, beloved, you. He said it to the Gentiles, and I'll say it to you as if he just wrote it today. You are no longer strangers and aliens. Now, just a thought there, just for a moment. I think we understand in the book of Hebrews, we are called, appropriately so, strangers and aliens and even exiles on this earth. But here, in Ephesians, it's a different context. He's speaking of the spiritual privilege that the Gentiles are now partakers of. Because you've come to Christ, you're no longer on the outside looking in. You are now, if you will, on the inside. In fact, he uses words there to elaborate that, that you're no longer a stranger. The idea here was they were second-class citizens. They were not part of Israel. They were, if you will, strangers from another country. They were strangers back in 212 to the covenants of promise. And then he calls them before their reconciliation, Aliens, and I think we understand that an alien is not somebody from outer space. An alien is somebody who lived, if you will, in a foreign land. It would have been somebody who was disenfranchised, somebody who had no rights. And again, we're back to that alienation, Christless, on the blacklist, homeless, helpless, and godless. But he says here, the negative, you're no longer that, but your fellow citizens with all the saints. In other words, you've been given a kingdom. You are now saints. I love that word. In other words, you, if you're in here and you know Christ, are called saints. You are the holy ones. You say, well, what does that mean? It just means this, that when he redeemed you, 
The ideal of holy in the Old Testament was to be set apart from what is common and then positively dedicated unto God. And here is this wonderful principle that you are made holy. You are the saints. And so I just say that, who is the church? The church is not a physical building. The the church is a group of people who were once lost and who are now saved who were once far off and have been brought near. A people who used to be identified as a sinner away from the things of Christ, who have now been reconciled, have come to a place of peace, but he said, you are the saints. That's what the church is. It's a group of people on their way to the celestial city who are evermore trying to be more like Christ and more holy. Now the truth is, if you're in Christ, he made you holy. He sees you right now through the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just sang about part of that. He sees you through Christ's finished work. That no longer does he see you as a sinner, but he sees you as a saint. And this is for all believers. In fact, look back in chapter 1 and verse 1. You remember he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, there's our word, the hagios, the holy ones, and these people resided in Ephesus. In fact, you remember when Paul says in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in, where? Heaven. And we're now presently part of a spiritual kingdom. It says this in Romans 14.17, that that kingdom is righteousness. It is peace. It is joy in the Holy Spirit. So I really believe that we ought to be the most joyous people because of what he's done. So that kingdom is present. It's present, excuse me. We're now fellow citizens. We're in his kingdom, but it's also future because remember Jesus instructed us in the Lord's prayer to pray, thy kingdom come. And so here to these believers, he said, you, number one, have been made holy in the church of Jesus Christ. You've been given citizenship, and the citizenship provides a sense of belonging, that you are part of God's kingdom. It's a thrilling thought. There was at one time, many years ago, I was on my way to New Zealand. I don't know if I've told you this account, but uh, it was in 1994 And uh, right prior to my departure was the massive earthquake in L.A. that I think most of us remember. I was there at that point, and boy, our little townhome was rocking all over the place. And uh, it was a massive earthquake. And just a couple days later, I was to go to New Zealand. And it's one of those frightening thoughts, has this ever happened to you, where I'm standing in line at LAX ready to get Air New Zealand for the 10 p.m. flight out of L.A. It doesn't stop anywhere. It's a 14-hour flight all the way to Auckland, New Zealand. And I'm standing there about five paces from the counter, and it just suddenly struck me. I forgot my what? I forgot my passport. And I thought, oh, no. The the earthquake delayed my trip a day. And so then I had to, I, I panicked. I didn't have much time. And before I knew it, in five minutes, I said, uh, here's my ticket. I had printed it out, old days, old school. And she said, let me see your passport. And I said, I'm so sorry, miss. I, uh, I left it at home. I mean, what do I do? I'm just trying to 
She says, well, oh, she says, you don't have a passport. I said, I have one. I left it at home, and in between the standing up to her, I called my friend who got in his car from Santa Clarita, Newhall, but the freeway fell apart. Do you remember that? The, fee- the freeway just dropped, and so he had to go all the way around L.A., and he didn't make it, but I'm standing to the counter, and I, and I started to panic, and I said, ma'am, listen, I'm going to speak at a Bible conference. I am a pastor, and you have to get me on this plane. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of like no passport. I can't let you leave this country. They won't let you enter this country. I said, ma'am, listen, I gave her the line again. I said, I'm a pastor. Um, I will pray for you. What's your name? And uh, I, I was just pulling out everything, but I couldn't. She, she wouldn't. I said, you've got to do this. Will you go get your supervisor for me? I said, there, there may be a thousand students waiting on this conference. And I started to give her a, I, I probably should have cried. No, I didn't cry. Um, and, and she wouldn't let me in. So then I go down to the to the Australia airline and try to buy a ticket. I thought, I just got to get there. And they shut me down because I had no passports. They wouldn't give me a ticket either. I had no passport, no access. I was locked out in their minds. I'm an alien, at least an alien, a stranger to get from one place to another. Listen, that's just for entering a country. We would say exiting a country. But can you imagine how excited these Gentiles were when Paul said, listen, not only have you been who were far off, you've been brought near. But now he says, I've not only brought you near, reconciled you to God, but I've now reconciled you to each other and you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are actually fellow citizens. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You are no longer, Paul writes, on passport status. You possess a birth certificate, and on that birth certificate, it has stamped heaven on it. In other words, beloved, you belong to Jesus Christ. If you're a Gentile and you've come to Christ, he made you holy. He looks at you no longer as those on the outside, but considers you fellow citizens on the inside. He considers you saints and holy ones, set apart for God, separated from what is mundane. And this is all believers. And the great thing about this is your status will never change, amen? Your status will never expire. In fact, he puts it in the continuous present possession here. In other words, when you come to Christ, when he made you holy in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he made you holy and that is your permanent status. So he says here to begin with, he says he's made you holy. And I ask you this morning, do you have that kind of birth certificate? If it was to be opened up in your heart, would it be stamped with heaven on it? Have you given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to saving faith, looking at the work of Christ and his death on your behalf and having come in faith to Christ? Has he stamped that? Well, listen, once he stamps that, that's your possession forever. You have been made holy. But there's a second truth. Look at verse 19. It says there that you're not only with the saints, but your members. Do you see that verse 19 at the end? You're members of the household of God. You're no longer strangers and aliens. He made you holy. But secondly here, 
He now places you into the family of God. So you are now part of God's household. And because you have identified yourselves with his son by faith, God now sees you and treats you exactly as he sees and treats his son. He treats you with infinite love. He not only takes you from far to near, he makes you holy in Christ, but this is unbelievable. You now become part of God's household. You become part of his family. Now you might look at that in verse 19 and underline that, and you're members of the household of God, and you might ask, how does anybody become a member of the family of God. In fact, you could even ask the question, how does anyone actually become a member of any family? And what's interesting is there's always two ways that could happen. I mean, you are either born into that family, or secondly, you're what? You're adopted into that family. And what's amazing is the Bible, when it speaks of here, that you're members of God's household, the Bible uses both. And we saw that in John chapter 3 when Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the what? The kingdom of God. So the only way you can come into the family of God is to be born again. You must be born again. In fact, he uses the word, look down in your Bible at Ephesians chapter 2, 5. It's a unique word. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. In other words, he made you alive, did God. And so you have to be born into his kingdom. So listen, I think we understand that. You may be visiting today. You may come into a church. It may be a physical building. I'm grateful for the place that we can worship and where our kids can be. But the only way that you go from an outsider to an insider is when you've been made holy through the work of Jesus Christ. The only way that you get added, if you will, to God's family is by becoming born again into the kingdom of God. But he doesn't just use that word in the Bible. Look over at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. He uses that second word in Ephesians 1, 5, that not only did he, that we should be holy and blameless before him at the end of 4, in love, he predestined us for, remember that, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth. You who once were far off, you who were once homeless, you who once who were helpless, you were once who were godless, have been adopted into his very own family and kingdom. And then you were made, if you will, brothers and sisters with each other. He's after his theme of unity, even here. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 3. He speaks in verse 14 of his prayer. For this reason, Paul said, I bow my knees before the Father. In other words, those are household terms. Look at verse 15. From whom every family in heaven and earth is named. We've been adopted as sons. You have been given in chapter 2, verse 18, access to God who is identified as your father. You, beloved, here's the point, have not only been made holy, but secondly, you are now members of God's family. 
What a great truth. In fact, the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 2, verse 11, those who are sanctified are all from one Father. And he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And so we're his family. We're his household. We now are brothers and sisters. And I think the implication, just practically, can I throw this in? If God accepts you, then you should accept one another in this church. You might even say, but pastor, I know so many things about them. Yes, God knows all about them as well, and he loves them, and he also knows all the stuff about you, and he loves you, doesn't he? So I think what he's telling us, this group of Jews and Gentiles who were barricaded on the outside from getting into the temple, who could never be brought near to God, they had their face, if you will, slammed in the face of rabbis because they no longer considered the Gentiles anything but the evil of the earth. In fact, they said that they were the fuels for the fires of hell. But now, listen, beloved, he not only took you who were alienated, he reconciled you both back to God vertically, he reconciled you back to each other horizontally, but now he's placed you in his creation. And you're now with brothers and sisters. God is our Father. What a thought there. You're not just guest. I don't know if this makes a difference to you. You're not just a guest in his home. You're family. You're his household, okay? He took you from hopelessness and homelessness, if you will, and brought you near and adopted you into his very own household. And Paul said in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, remember that? Uh, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, what? Abba, Father. What a wonderful truth here. You were once, at least according to Ephesians 2, under the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And he's now made you children of God. You who once were under bondage to Satan, now have God as your father. And you have access to him. You were once in chapter 2, a son of disobedience. A di disobedience and now he's made you to be children of the king and part of his family. So here's where Paul's going. He not only redeems you. You. He not only makes you holy, he not only puts you secondly into his household, but thirdly, and here's the dominant truth, he says to you, I'm going to preach it to you, that you're part of God's holy temple. Part of God's holy temple. Look at verse 20 and 21. This holy temple, he changes the metaphor from that of family to the, to the metaphor of building. It's built on the foundation, built, he's talking about something, a building, of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there's our key word, it's a holy temple in the Lord. Now if you're tracking here, if you want, in this holy temple, there's a foundation, being laid, there is a formation of you being put together, and there's a function to be and do in the local church. And let me just say, all he's doing here is building his theology. He's building our position in Christ. He's telling you about all the things that Christ has done to make this body unified, and then he gets to chapter 4 through 6, and he says, Here how to here's how you live it out. But first, the foundation. 
the foundation. Look at it in verse 19. Excuse me, in verse 20. You were built, this household of God, which is another framework and reference for a church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Obviously, when we built our church, we had a foundation that was laid. The foundation was undergirding uh, the church. It was supporting the building. The foundation, you and I understand, is crucial. Now, here he's not talking about brick and mortar. He's talking about something else. He's talking about God's temple. But he's not talking about a temple physically. He's talking about a temple spiritually. He called it there. You saw it there in verse 21. It's a holy temple in the Lord. And the temple of the church, if you will, of the church of Jesus Christ is built upon. Now it says there, you can see that in 21, excuse me, in 20. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So why does he put that in there? Well, it's a part of the foundation. It's obviously not the foundation of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. He'll speak of that in a moment. But he said there's a foundation to this. And if you're new here, of course there's a foundation. And we're preaching the apostles' doctrine. The apostles, not just a broad word for apostolos, but those 12 who were called and commissioned by the Lord, and he's using that here, apostles and prophets, in a restricted sense or a special sense. And I think we know there were 12. Matthias replaced Judas. We know that Paul was an apostle. James was an apostle. There were a few others. The credentials of an apostle, I think you well know, is that they had to see the risen Lord. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But more than that, and that is foundational, they received revelation. They taught doctrine, did the apostles. And I went through that in John chapter 4, 14, 15, and 16. In fact, the early church in chapter 2, verse 42, it says they were teaching the apostles' doctrine. But not just apostles was this foundation laid. There were prophets. And the prophets were foundational in their role of proclaiming divine revelation. The prophets built the church, if you will, you know, spiritually. They edified the church. And they did this until the scripture was complete. They laid down doctrine, did both the apostles and the prophets. They were foundational. And when he says prophets here, I don't believe he's looking back to the Old Testament. Certainly, we had prophets, and certainly the prophets spoke of the Lord. That, that could be true. But I think he's talking New Testament here. And the reason I do is in 2.20, he doesn't say the prophets and the apostles. He says the apostles and the prophets. So in those early years, as the apostles' doctrine was being laid down and written and circulated, God gave prophets to the church to proclaim the message that the apostles had taught. And the reason I believe that, look over in chapter 3, in verse um, 5, he's talking about the mystery that was not made known, 3-5, to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been, here's the great word, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit of God. In other words, they played a very unique 
uh, role and this foundation. In fact, look over in chapter 4, a great text there when he's talking about the gifts that were given to the church. And it says that when Christ ascended on high, verse 11, he gave, and in the same order, the apostles, the prophets, and linking that to chapter 2, verse 20, they were foundational. And beloved, I think I, I just want to say to you, you don't mess with the foundation. You don't mess with Scripture. You don't take away from Scripture. You don't add to the Scripture. The church of Jesus Christ is built, if you will, on the foundation of apostolic teaching, of prophetic men and who gave that word, who were anointed by the Spirit. And then once the doctrine was complete, when we held the scriptures in our hand, they passed on and were left with the other gifts in 4, 11, and 12. Now, he speaks that of the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But look again, he goes even greater here. Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone. And you know that word. He is the cornerstone. There's a song that sings of that, that speaks of that, that he's our cornerstone. And so he's talking here, is he not, about the church being a holy temple. The foundation was laid by those apostles and prophets who taught the person of Jesus Christ. They're there, 1 Corinthians 3.11, but the whole foundation was laid by Christ, who's identified here as the cornerstone. You say, what's a cornerstone? Well, a cornerstone is a major stone in any type of building in this era that was set down. And this cornerstone, this large stone, had to be large enough to support the whole structure. It had to be so accurately placed in the foundation of any building that all the walls were conformed to the angle of that stone. So if that stone was placed wrong, obviously the walls would be off. In fact, the placement of the cornerstone was crucial, just vital to the alignment of every other stone in that building. If that stone, beloved, the cornerstone was cut wrong, the entire symmetry of the entire building would be completely off and affected. You know, it's interesting, and I've been to Israel, some of you there with me. In the 1990s, the archaeologists, they discovered five enormous stones that actually formed the foundation of the Jewish and temple in Jerusalem. And I just, it's hard for you to imagine how big some of these stones were. The largest stone measured, you say a stone, you're thinking I'm going to put one in my hand. The largest stone measured 55 feet long, 11 feet high. And one archaeologist estimated that it weighed 570 tons. I mean, these just are massive. And I've seen these stones and I'm going to bring him here by a picture for you, okay? Here's the picture, okay? There's one of the stones right there. Like you say, is that one stone on the top? Yeah, that's just one stone. It's an ashlar stone. They're just massive. You, in fact, if you look it up, you'll find and see that some of these stones are the largest stones in the entire world. Go to the next slide. 
This is Don Claussen, okay? No, it's not really Don. I see Don out there. He, you could see how massive that stone was um, in this Jerusalem temple. So you've seen pictures of the Temple Mount. When they discovered these stones, it's under the western wall. They dug a tunnel, and below the temple that sat on the, 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 is the Temple Mount are these large stones. Look at the next slide, just to put it in. That's a picture of Mary Ann Claus. No, that's not Mary Ann. That's a Jewish guide. Do you see how big they are? She's standing above, like right by shoulder length, one of these massive, massive stones. Now, that's, I'm not saying that's the cornerstone, but they're down there under the western wall on the Temple Mount. But the cornerstone here that's referred to Christ was the support. It was the connector. It was the strength giver. In fact, in the building of a building, the cornerstone was everything. And what Paul is saying here is that stone, that cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the cornerstone. So watch this. You've been made holy. You're part of God's household. But you've been placed supernaturally into the local church that was founded and built upon the apostles' doctrine and the prophets' preaching who were prophetically declaring the person of Jesus Christ and Christ himself is the cornerstone. In fact, you remember this verse in Isaiah chapter 28 in verse 16? Pull that up. It's a prophecy centuries before the person of Christ. Guys, do you have that? In Isaiah 28:16, probably 750 years before Christ. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, and here it is, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes in it will not be in haste or literally dismayed. That prophetic scripture is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is that precious cornerstone. In fact, beloved, you know what was interesting? Is so important was this physical cornerstone to a building that a builder often, it's written in, this, in the writings of their history, would reject stones before the right one was selected. I think we understand it had to be perfect. And here, beloved... The rejected stone, Christ, in the scripture has become the chief cornerstone. Do you remember this psalm in Psalm 118? Look at the next slide. The stone that the builders rejected has become what? The cornerstone, the person of Christ. What's amazing is that Psalm 118.22, Jesus applied to himself. In the parable of the vineyard owner in Matthew 21, he quotes, does our Lord, Psalm 118, when Jesus was just about to make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just one week before his death, or literally just days before his death. So this prophecy of the cornerstone spoken by Isaiah the prophet centuries before is now fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, it even goes beyond that to greater significance, and I think you know this, in the book of Acts 4.10, Peter was preaching, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you. It says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the Jewish nation, which has become, and there it is, the cornerstone. And then I think we often quote the next verse, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I love that. He is, beloved, the chief cornerstone. So here's the foundation of the holy temple. The apostles and the prophets laid some foundation down on the person of Christ, and he's the cornerstone. But secondly, it gets exciting. There's a formation of the holy temple. Look at the scripture in verse 21. It speaks there, and it goes, in whom? You say, well, who is that of? Well, obviously, the antecedent there in verse 21, uh, 221 is verse 20. It's Christ. He's the cornerstone. Verse 21, in whom? In Christ. Now, watch this language. It says there, the whole structure. In other words, I don't believe he's talking about the local church here, though Ephesus was a local church. He's talking about the church universal. He said, listen, he not only provided the foundation of this, but he, if you will, at this point, formed it when it says that the whole structure, look again at the text. It says being joined together. I love that. You say, what do you mean joined together? It's, it's in the language. We call that a, a passive. I call that a divine passive, if you will. In other words, he called you out. He redeemed you. He adopted you. He made you his sons. And he has not just left you to yourself. He has placed you in the church universal. He has placed you in a local church. And it says there in 21, that whole structure by the work of God in Christ is being joined together. In other words, he's fitting, if you will, the various parts skillfully together and he's not just haphazardly throwing us together. In fact, I'm fascinated by this. Look at the next slide in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says there, you've come to him, interesting, you, and, and I don't mean that rudely, but biblically, you're a stone, you're a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. You've come to him who's the living stone, but he calls us living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So you say, what's going on here? Well, believers are living stones in Christ's church. Look at the end of verse 21. He's Growing us, or just actually in the ESV, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You, you know, it's interesting. The physical building isn't just built. Here's what's different about this building. It grows. It's phenomenal. It's present tense. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ, the holy temple, is increasing in people. People are getting saved. God is calling people to himself. Not to stay isolated, not to even, if you will, not fellowship with people. He puts them in a local church, he grows them, he fits them, he frames them, he puts them in a snug place in a local church, and he grows them into a holy temple. You know, James, our 
youth director came up and said, just last fall, we baptized eight junior high students. God's doing an amazing work in the seventh and eighth grade. I met somebody two weeks ago at 18 to 24 who was invited to our um, fellowship at Thanksgiving time. And she's been coming and people have been sharing the Christ with, with her. And I had the joy to hear that she trusted the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man that's been coming to men's equippers and uh, just, just would come on Wednesday morning, 6 a.m., and we're talking about the doctrines of grace, and he heard the message on the call of God, and he thought, that's what's missing in my life. He was recognizing and understanding by the Holy Spirit through the power of the Word of God that God was calling him to himself. Listen, I just want you to know you're, excited, you're part of the greatest membership on the face of the earth. You don't have a passport stamped California or the United States. You've been called out by Almighty God before the foundation of the world. When he adopted you as his sons, he took you who were physically alienated. He took you and then reconciled you both to himself and with each other. Then he places you into a holy temple and he's fitting and he's framing and he's forming you. And this church... The local church at this point is growing into a holy temple. The whole structure is growing. Saints are found within God's church. They're living stones and they're growing unto him, unto a holy temple. And again, I think what's interesting here is this temple is not finished. Jesus Christ is continuously assembling and building together believers. The church of Jesus Christ, this church, Grace Church of the Valley, is a living and a growing organism. He's not talking here about a physical Jewish temple. He's not talking about the physical temple of Artemis or Diana. He's talking about the church spiritually here. He's talking about you individually. He's talking about us corporately. We are a holy temple. Don't you just think we ought to, and this is what he's going to say in chapter 4, we ought to just be praying for each other. We're brothers and sisters. We're growing. You're growing. You're being changed. You're being transformed. Look at verse 22. It's the most exciting part. He says, in him you also being built together, it says there, into a dwelling of God or a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. This is phenomenal. You say, what's he talking about? He, you're being built together. It's this, he's still on the thought, Jew and Gentile, formerly hating each other. Okay? But God's doing something here. He, he's causing us to be the dwelling place from God. So from the foundation to the formation of being fit as living stones to the, to the function of this holy temple. He says, unbelievably so, into a dwelling place for God. It's just such a significant word there. When, when you think of the ideal of a dwelling place for God... It speaks of a permanent home, okay? And the function of this holy temple is a dwelling place by which God lives by his spirit, by which God manifests his presence. Listen, I don't have time to uh, unpack all of this, but you go back into the Old Testament, there is such a rich metaphor there that oftentimes Israel would meet in the tabernacle 
Then they would meet in the temple and they were given, you know, descriptions of what the tabernacle would be and what the, the temple was. And all of it was, was a place where God, it would say this in Exodus 25, 8, would dwell with his people. In other words, God who does not have flesh, who does not have bones, would show his presence in his Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and in the temple. And he would dwell with his people and he would dwell with his people. Do you remember all those places, if you're reading through the Bible, where the Shekinah glory would come down in a cloud-like form and substance? What was it? It was the very presence of God. In fact, that cloud and that glory began to fill the temple so much that the priests couldn't move. They couldn't minister because the presence of God came into that place. Well, well, what, what is it? It's the presence of God. He's manifesting himself to the people in Exodus 25. In Exodus 40, God dwelt, that's the word, in the tabernacle. But sadly, so sadly, Israel's sin caused that glory to, do you remember? Depart. And in 1 Samuel 4, it was written across the, the temple, Ichabod. His glory began to leave. It was so sad. Then, he, then his glory came back and it dwelt in the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 through 11. 11. But again, Israel sinned and the glory departed in, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 10. And then it goes silent. Nobody's seen the presence of God. Nobody's seen that glory like cloud, but it came back after the silent years and it came back in the person of Jesus Christ. That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, that Word became what? Flesh, and it dwelt among us. His glory came back. It came back in the person of His Son, but then they took His Son and murdered him, and killed him, and put him on a cross, and then he ascended into glory. You say, well then, where is his glory seen today? It's seen in you. He has chosen radically, miraculously, to place the presence of God in our hearts individually and in our body corporately so that when people come in, they can see the glory of Jesus Christ. It's almost hard to believe. You say, well, Scott, I've never heard that. Well, I'm telling you it now because you're part of one of the greatest things on earth is the local church, that God has put his presence into the life of his people that they might both individually and corporately reveal the glory of God. Now listen, beloved, we know that God does not dwell, Solomon knew that, in man-made temples, that even if they built a wonderful temple, the whole universe, first kings could not contain his infinite being. So this new temple then is not a physical building, okay? It's not a site, it's a spiritual building. It's God's household. It is, in this sense, a global community embracing Jew and Gentile. It's the place where God's glory lives, where his presence dwells. It's inside a group of holy saints, those who have trusted him, those who have come to saving faith in him. You know, I just, some years back when I was in Italy, seeing one of our missionaries you know you just if you've ever been there it's it's on it's on the it's on the one hand you go into the basilicas it's it's breathtaking in some ways 
And what's breathtaking is at times the arts, the paintings. You just kind of go inside these and you sit and you stand and you stare, but then there's a bunch of other things in there that robs it of its beauty. There's saints that are physical idols, if you will, where people are giving glory to saints down through church history, which, you know, you're the saints and I'm the saints. And, and by the time you're done with it, you're, your heart's breaking because that's not the church. This is not the church. You're the church, individually and corporately. So this is an unbelievable truth here that he's made us his people. In fact, let me bring this up and just illustrate it. I'm, I'm done. You've been so patient today. First Corinthians, look at these scriptures. And he's speaking individually here. I think in Ephesians, he's speaking corporately of the church. Do you not know? You. You. Individually, I'll say it in this text, are God's temple. You. Why? Because the God's spirit, John, we did all that, dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3, for God's temple is holy and you are the temple. Do you not know, 1 Corinthians, that your body, just your physical body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. And so he says to you adults and to you young people, you've been bought with a price, glorify God in your body. I think there's one more in 2 Corinthians chapter, I think it's 6. For we are the temple of the living God. You, you say, Scott, what's the point here? Listen, I, you know, you're here. And some of you are kind of flitting and floating at different places. And, and it would be that, that you need to stick somewhere. And get involved in the greatest organism in the whole world. And it is not the NBA. It is not the NFL. Okay? It is not a sports team. It's being part of God's local church that he describes you as, as, a, as a holy nation. Your fellow citizens. You've been made holy. And he's put you in this holy temple. Amazing. To reveal what? Not ourselves. But to reveal the glory of God who redeemed you in the person of Christ. In fact, here's the three metaphors you might say that he uses to describe the unity of the church. We're made holy. Secondly, we're God's household. Thirdly, we're God's holy temple. But listen, one day it says in Revelation 21, after the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, will the voice from the throng, throne declare, behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and we, and he, speaking of God, will dwell with them. Can't you wait for that day? Listen, if you go to glory, you're going to be with God. So listen, we have a wonderful, merciful Savior. Would you bow your head with me and